0: Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power. Every individual's actions matter in preserving
1: resources. Join the Ripple Effect to build a more resilient water future. Learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the Ripple Effect.
2: LAist
3: Studios.
2: Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
3: Today on the LA Report, an atmospheric river is heading to Southern California. We tell you how to prepare for a potentially dangerous downpour. We're expecting impacts that are really going to rival the storm season of last year, if not exceed. Later, LAist science reporter Jacob Margolis shares what he's learned about the future survival of mountain lions. And I'll talk with street artist and graphic designer Shepard Ferry about a new exhibition of his art at the Reflex Space inside the Glendale Central Library. It's Saturday, February 3rd. I'm Julia Paskin. And that's all coming up on the weekend edition of the LA Report from LAist 89.3. But first, here is the latest news. looking at another major storm starting tonight with the worst expected Sunday into Monday morning. The National Weather Service has issued a flood watch for L.A. County as well as Orange County and the Inland Empire starting tomorrow afternoon. High winds and thunderstorms are also possible tomorrow night into Monday. Meteorologist Rose Schoenfeld says people in flood-prone areas should be on high alert. We're expecting um, impacts that are really going to rival the storm season of last year, if not exceed. She adds that now is the time to get ready in case of an emergency. It might be good to prepare for a potential evacuation. Grab a bag that has all your essentials, medications, things like that, um, and be prepared to heed local authorities. Schoenfeld says people should avoid driving if possible. And also, if you are flood prone, clear out those gutters and get some sandbags. Kristen Crowley with the LAFD says if you absolutely have to hit the roads. Never drive through flooded areas where the pavement is not visible. If you are stranded in your car, move to the hood or the roof if the water rises. According to the National Weather Service, just six inches of fast-moving water can knock over an adult. A foot of rushing water can carry away most cars, and two feet will take out SUVs and trucks. So when in doubt, turn around and don't drown. With an atmospheric river set to dump several inches of rain on Southern California, LAist Robert Gorova checks in on the state of our reservoirs.
1: Stormwater collection makes up about one-third of LA County's water supply every year. With all the wet weather last year, that was up to about half. Even with our recent rain, county workers are hoping to save more, says LA Public Works Kerjan Lee. We do have quite a bit of capacity in our 14 major dams for what's coming uh, in this next storm, even though it is going to be considered quite significant. Lee says a dedicated team of engineers and operators, collectively called storm Boss, will be monitoring levels in dams and reservoirs, making controlled releases to save as much water as possible. For LAist 89.3, I'm Robert Garova.
3: In other news, L.A. County could soon issue permits to street vendors after a board of supervisors vote. The practice has been decriminalized in California since 2018. But without a registry in L.A. County, vendors in areas such as East L.A., South Whittier and Lenox operate in a legal gray area. The motion still needs one more round of votes before it's approved. And it's only February, but camping spots fill up early for the summer and spring. So Jasmine Reinhardt with the National Park Service recommends a boat ride maybe to the Channel Islands, which are home to animals that don't live anywhere else in the world. Sometimes they're called the Galapagos of North America. And the reason why that is is because the Channel Islands were never connected to the mainland, which means plants and animals have essentially evolved in isolation. To find out more about the Channel Islands and other more under-the-radar national parks near Los Angeles, go to LAist.com for our handy guide. More coming up after this break.
2: Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
3: Welcome back to the L.A. Report. I'm Julia Paskin. The future of mountain lions in the Santa Monicas could in part depend on the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing, the whole purpose of which is to make it easier for animals to travel back and forth over the 101 in Agora. But as L.A.ist science reporter Jacob Margolis found out, getting mountain lions to go anywhere can be tough because of one factor that's not often talked about, and that's light.
1: UCLA light expert Travis Longcore and I are walking on a trail deep in the hills of Agora, just as dusk is turning to night. So for the mountain lions,
2: just getting dark enough. Yeah, they can see us uh, absolutely fine here.
1: Mountain lions love the night, slinking through the darkness, looking for mates and food. But there's a major problem here. Just off in the distance between the beautifully dark hills perfect for exploring is the 101, a giant river of deadly light. They've got to get past.
2: We're looking at the freeway and there's a series of bright lights that are associated with the off-ramp there and the hundreds and thousands of cars going by, each with their own headlights um, that are lighting things up. So it's a
1: clear noise and light barrier. Travis and other researchers have found that mountain lions appear to try and avoid direct sources of light. Here in the Santa Monicas, a puzzle of freeways have kind of trapped a group of lions, limiting their movement and killing some, too. Now there's only an estimated about 12 of them left in the hills above Malibu, and they're showing signs of inbreeding, meaning they need more lions there to fix the genetics.
4: You know, I did notice in my own work,
2: sometimes they would get close to a highway, and they would just sit there and wait for the sun to come up. Paul
1: Beyer is a retired researcher, and one of the first people to figure out how sensitive lions are to light and development, that they seem to look for the darkest, most protected path, the opposite of a bright freeway. He says he once tracked a mountain lion until it sat down on a bluff looking down over Anaheim, seemingly scoping out a major freeway overnight.
4: The next morning, he saw, okay, ah, it looks good over there. And then when the sun went down, he did cross. Choosing
1: to use a darkened underpass, probably because it was isolated from the freeway.
4: I had another one who went to the same area, and instead of going through the underpass, he tried to cross that grade, and he got hit by a vehicle. Uh, he stumbled his way back, and, but he, he never did make it across.
1: So how's the Wallace-Annenberg project going to make sure that mountain lions use the crossing? Well, I asked Robert Rock, the lead landscape architect.
0: It was a question of how do we do it while still maintaining Caltrans
1: standards? Robert told me all the streetlights are gonna be shorter and shielded, so they don't shine into the wilderness and plants along the crossing and the crossing itself should block a lot of light from the cars, hopefully creating a welcoming dark path over the freeway. But go there and you'll see it's a tall order. Standing next to the freeway with UCLA light expert, Travis Longcore, it's intense.
2: Fifty yards from the freeway. Yeah, it is bright. You could almost read your driver's license if you took it out.
1: Travis was one of the many experts who consulted on the project and he thinks it'll work. But as we were standing there, his attention turned not to the project area, but the intimidating lights around it. From homes, an office building,
2: the street lights. My concerns are making sure that these lights along the freeway and the ones that may be off site down here that we somehow can take care of those as well. So that it's just crystal clear to an animal that this is a safer route than anything else they might do.
1: The good news is it could take just one juvenile mountain lion moving into the Santa Monica's to help with the inbreeding problem. For LAist 89.3, I'm Jacob Margolis.
3: Artist Shepard Ferry has a new free exhibit in town. You can find it at the Reflect space tucked inside the Glendale Central Library. He's also designed a limited edition library card for the Glendale Library, available now. You may remember his Hope poster from the first Obama presidential campaign, and going back further, his Obey Andre the Giant prints from the 1990s that dotted the streets of cities around the world, including L.A. I spoke with Ferry, who has been based here in Los Angeles for more than 20 years, about the exhibit called Peace is Radical.
5: I love doing things that engage civically, that show that spaces like the library that are very democratic matter and that, you know, government can support the arts in meaningful ways.
3: Yeah, I got to say, it is pretty cool for such a high-profile artist to be in such an accessible space. Talk to us a little bit about the theme of the exhibit, about Peace is Radical. Um, Perhaps you want to start with the piece that also shares that name.
5: I have done a lot of work over the years about promoting peace, harmony, diplomacy and used a lot of different symbols but the peace sign with the peace fingers is something that's been a recurrent motif because I think it's understood across many cultures and and nations and the peace's radical image that I made was made about a year and a half ago but it's especially relevant right now with what's going on in the Ukraine and and in Israel and Palestine. So the whole concept of peace being radical to me is that too many people take the reactionary path of resorting to violence rather than taking a deep breath and putting their ego in check for a second and finding a compromise that avoids violence. So this was the underlying concept of that particular image, but this idea of finding common ground with other human beings, pushing for harmony, pushing for for peace, pushing for justice. This is consistent within my work for many, many years.
3: Can you describe any other pieces uh, for folks that are not familiar uh, with some of your catalogs that might be in there um, that really exemplify this idea of um, that it's harder to achieve peace than it is not?
5: There's a very large wall graphic right when you walk into the space that's meant to the scale and the visceral experience of coming across one of my works uh, on a wall in public. And it's a it's a mosaic of several different pieces that include the main piece's radical image, but also a woman I call the justice woman who is an archetypal activist wearing a beret with a flower logo on it, and she's wearing a necklace that's the scales of justice and making eye contact with the viewer. And I think that that image is really effective in confronting everyone because there's a sense of sympathetic humanity within the portrait and of engagement that, um, in my opinion, has a little bit of the spirit of, would you do this while... A peer was watching you. Would you do it while you're you didn't want to shame your mother because she's watching you? And and I, I feel like sometimes people use complex language to convolute simple things. And so I'm a lot of times using simple imagery to untangle those things that have become convoluted.
3: I want to ask you about working in the medium of prints. Do you have a a specific screening process that you stick with consistently? And why do you use it so much?
5: There's uh, an installation in the show that's called Unlimited Screen Time. And it's a bunch of my actual screens that I use to print prints and work on my fine art. Screen printing has been the cornerstone of my practice for over 30 years because it is so effective and efficient in making graphic images that can be fine art. So screen printing really aligns with my philosophy that art should be accessible, it should be democratic, experiencing it firsthand outside of just elite spaces like galleries and museums, but also accessible price-wise. So I sell my prints inexpensively and it's still a big part of what I do. And it's not a super difficult technique. I started to learn how to do it in middle school So um, I know from my own experience how empowering it is. So I I, using it as part of a template of empowerment for other people, but it also still very practically serves my needs and furthers my philosophy.
3: When you make a piece of work that has an intended message, how do you put those feelings into a a fine art piece?
5: Well, um, it's not always easy, but I do think that if you can impact the audience emotionally if it gives them a positive strong feeling then that can break through predispositions you know any sort of barrier they might have put up because it doesn't align with the way they identify politically or socially and so i'm always looking for what is the imagery what is the text what is the color scheme that's going to achieve that? And it is not a precise science at all. A lot of it is based on feeling and trial and error. And sometimes I have an idea and after I render it, I realize it, it's not succeeding and I keep pushing, I keep tinkering and experimenting until it's giving me the feeling that I hope it will give to other people.
3: Shepherd Ferry, thank you so much for being with us.
5: Yeah, my pleasure.
3: Peace is Radical is at the Reflect Space inside the Glendale Central Library through April 14th. Dry January is over for those who have been observing it, and what a better way to mark the occasion than a glass of wine that will not break the bank. And while a lot of people know about Trader Joe's two-buck chuck, they're not the only ultra-cheap wine on the market. So our producer, Kevin Tidmarsh, ran a cheap wine taste test here in our newsroom, and he's here to talk about the results. Hey, Kevin. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so what two brands did you pick?
4: So we limited ourselves to the bottom of the bottom shelf. We got a bottle of Aldi's Winking Owl and a bottle of Trader Joe's Charles Shaw, which we now have to call four buck chuck because of inflation. Mm. Both wines cost a grand total of three forty nine a bottle. And by the way, if you ask me, classiness comes from within. So you can still be classy drinking whatever wine you buy.
3: Here, here. Okay, so how did you compare them?
4: We settled on Merlot for the taste test because it was available in both brands. And Merlot, it kind of feels like the equivalent of like General Tso's chicken at a Chinese takeout spot. Like, if you're going to get one thing right, it had better be that. So if you like Merlot, that's great. If not, feel free to get your friends and family together, copy what we did for all the other varieties of wine. It'll be a whole party for, like, $20.
3: Okay. So uh, what did people think?
4: Let me tell you, people had thoughts. <laughs> So we pulled together 10 taste testers who totally ran the gamut from wine aficionados to our intern who just turned 21. The Trader Joe's four buck chuck just barely won out in the popular vote. And we had to pull in some more volunteers actually to to break the tie. I'd say most people thought the Trader Joe's wine was drinkable. It even kind of won over one member of our staff whose favorite wine cost $250 a bottle. He did not like the Aldi brand as much. Mm. Um, And overall, the Aldi wine was pretty polarizing, but a lot of people ended up preferring how it tasted. I'll say I thought both wines were drinkable. The Aldi brand was fine. I've had worse. It was (laughs) earthy, maybe a little acidic. But I preferred the four buck chuck almost immediately as soon as I drank it. It's very pleasant and sweet not usually my preference. I kind of like drier wines, but I'm sure I'm going to use it to make like a sangria or something this summer.
3: That is a great idea for a not ideal wine to just put a bunch of like juice and fruit in it. And then there you go.
4: Exactly. <laughs>
3: okay. So we uh, we actually have both wines right here in studio. Do you want to run our own little mini taste test here?
4: It's always five o'clock somewhere. Okay.
3: And this is a blind taste test. So I don't know which ones these are. This is wine number one. Also, just want to tell the listeners, you can really smell these lines like they're sitting maybe a one or two feet away from me and i'm like woof that's one all right oh my oh that oh, is
4: oh the face you just made oh i think it says it all <laughs> not a compliment
3: i did not enjoy that that was very tart yeah all right let's go for the next one <laughs> all right all right fair enough. Mm, clear our palette number two you know this one smells less pungent mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um okay oh bad in an entirely different way. (laughs) All right. Okay. So if I had to go for the long haul, like I'm drinking an entire glass of this, I think number two would be more
4: palatable. Mm. So that one is the Charles Shaw. Um, So you ended up voting along with most of us. Also, most people said they wouldn't end up drinking it probably as the first wine. They said maybe that wine would be the last one
3: they drank. After maybe they're a little tipsy and their tongue is numb.
4: All the good wine is already gone. You know, that kind of thing. All right, so another vote for the four-buck chuck. There we go.
3: Yeah, it got my vote just barely. That's Kevin Tidmarsh, our producer who conducted a cheap wine test in the newsroom to see which one tastes better. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Julia. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Edition of the LA Report. The Weekend LA Report is hosted by me, Julia Paskin, and produced by Kevin Tidmarsh and Monica Bushman. Our engineer is Sean Corey Campbell. The podcast is edited by Fiona Ng. Catherine Mailhouse is the Director of Content Development, and our Vice President of Podcasts is Shana Naomi Krokmall. Join us back here tomorrow. You can read more at LAS.com and listen live on the LA app or on the radio at 89.3 FM listeners like you help make the la report possible please donate at las.com join this podcast is supported by gordon and donna crawford who believe quality journalism makes southern california a better place to live the la spring super sweeps is happening now you can win amazing prizes while supporting
2: your source for local fact-based journalism